Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us once again. A few months ago, I finally had the chance to go in person to the site where my family attends at Sanctus. That's the Bowmanville site. And so I was excited to go there because, of course, usually I'm preaching at Ajax or in another location. So I finally got to go there. So I got in my car and put up Google Maps and put in the name and started driving. And I was driving with confidence that I was going to be there and I kept driving and I hadn't been to this location or had been a long time because of COVID. And so I was driving and driving and I was like, where is this place? Where is this high school? As I kept driving, I ended up on a road with two houses surrounded by a massive forest. And it says, you've arrived. And I said, no, I have not. It said, you've arrived. I'm like, no, I have not. You've arrived. No, where am I? was in the completely wrong place because uh, Google Maps had messed up the name of a street. I, I, I share that with you because I want to remind you that much of the time when we're going somewhere, we can have absolute confidence we're going to the right place and we're going to arrive at the right time and then we end up in the wrong place at the wrong time and we don't know what to do. And that's what this whole series is about. It is meant to help all of us journey well, walk well, no matter who we are, where we might have been, where we're going in relation to this thing called Christianity. But to journey well, we need signposts, reliable signposts, markers. We need the nav computer to be correct because yes, of course, the journey does matter and how we do the journey matters, but so does the destination. So I want to start where I did last week, because I know lots of you are joining us for the first time, and I want to outline four major big ideas we're trying to wrestle through in this series that all impact us. Again, it was that famous Oxford theologian, uh, Alistair McGrath, that wrote the difference between unbelief, skepticism, and doubt. Unbelief is the decision not to have faith in God. Unbelief is an act of the will rather than a difficulty of understanding. Skepticism, on the other hand, is a decision to doubt everything deliberately. It's a matter of principle. Ah, but doubt means you're asking questions or voice, voicing uncertainties from a standpoint of faith. You believe, but you have difficulties with faith or you're worried about it in some way. Faith and doubt aren't mutually exclusive, but faith and unbelief are. And then I shared last week, there's this new word that's actually a very old word, but it's become very popular in the last two plus years. It's the word deconstruction, and it seems to blur the other three together. And again, it was Russell Moore from the States who wrote an amazing article in Christianity Today that I think brought this home. With all this talk of deconstruction these days, one problem is that very few people mean precisely the same thing when they use that word. For some, deconstruction means losing their faith altogether. I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious anymore. For others, deconstruction means still believing in Jesus, but really struggling with how religious institutions have failed. And there are many others who think deconstruction means I'm going to maintain an ongoing orthodox commitment to Christianity and I'm really committed to the local church, but I don't want all the political, cultural baggage associated with the label evangelicalism. Now, of course, he's speaking from an American background. So you've got unbelief, you've got skepticism, you've got doubt, you've got deconstruction, and then like I shared last week and many others listening to me today, you're just fine with the faith. You believe, you're in, you're just, everything's fine. So, 
as you continue to walk or as you try to find your way back or if you're considering leaving Christianity or you're trying to understand it for the very first time, the second place we all need to go as a church family on this journey is a place of public humiliation and public confusion. See, so many of us are wandering and wandering connected to Christianity because of the onslaught of so many public confusing moments. Now, what I'm going to speak on today probably is the most important message I make given this whole series. See, many of us, or maybe our friends or family, are struggling, not just because life is hard and complex on the best of days, especially these days, but many of us actually don't know how to journey well when everything feels like it's going to hell in a handbasket publicly. Let me just set the scene why things can feel so overwhelming and bad. So much of the public discourse happening these days just has decay in it. Online trolls, personal coffees that go sideways, family dinners that don't go well, just things aren't good. And then there's this growing experience of almost like a mob mentality where vengeance replaces justice and people are excited when people get what they deserve. We're, we're actually moving very quickly to like a Roman time, when, when pre-Jesus time, where mercy, grace, and forgiveness just weren't common or expected. There's the ever-growing crowd that loves a fight, loves to see people get hurt, uh, loves or finds joy when those we don't agree with get what's coming to them. And then actually probably the vast majority of us sense trouble coming, and we just want to get safe, and we don't want to get involved. But the truth is, even when we're not involved in a lot of this, we wonder about it, and we're still affected by the fallout. Others are upset because it feels like institutions or even the law matter more than people, and there's power plays, and then there's standing and platform over truth and over people. And then others are saying you're burning everything down, but you don't actually have a plan to build anything up on the other side. And then there's the real and perceived double standard for those who have stronger positions. And then there's just the growing humiliation of people as people try to win sides. And then there's just the human condition of suffering without context. Oh, and closer to home, for some of you, some of you, the suffering for you is connected to faith and it feels so unfair and you're thinking in your quiet moments, if I could just revamp parts of Christianity or redefine parts of Christianity or maybe I should just leave Christianity, I could finally breathe again, I could be free. Why do I keep putting myself through this? And all of this in part or in full is being felt, experienced and walked through in our church and every local church, and every global church. No wonder so many are like, I already got a dysfunctional family at home. I don't need an adopted one too. So in the middle of all of what I just outlined, can we find our way? Could I find my way back, or could I even keep going? Well, yes. And one of the strongest moments that helps us build another group of signposts, gives us the right navigation to the right place for our journey, is found in a major public encounter between three groups of people. It starts at the end of John 7 and actually is worked out in John 8. So if you read John chapter 7, if you actually went home and did that today, so much takes place. Jesus already starts using divine language, God language for himself, which would raise a lot of eyebrows in any culture, but in a Jewish culture that's monotheistic, even more eyebrow raising. But then Jesus antes up 
this conversation and he does it in public. He intentionally goes to the temple and begins to openly teach in the temple the heart of the Jewish faith. What he's, being, what he's been saying sort of in private or in the backwaters, now he takes to the very center. He doesn't avoid conflict, he starts it. And as he starts to teach again, the crowds listening have a mixed review of him, like they always have. John 7, 12. Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about Jesus. Some said, ah, he's a good man. Others replied, no, 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 he's deceiving people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for the fear of the Jews. Now, in, in this case in John, the Jews here means the religious leaders. It says in verse 15, the Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? He's got no PhDs. He didn't go to a seminary. Now, then it turns really ugly. The religious leaders, like the crowd, first are really impressed, and then they're shocked, and then they're angry, and then they outright reject him. And, and, and yeah, they're amazed he's got no formal education, but then this is how it goes downhill. In verse 20, it says that they think he actually is a demon inside of him, and then in verse 27, they say, well, you can't be the chosen or the Messiah because you're born in the wrong place, and then in chapter 8, verse 13, they say he's a liar, and then in verse 19, they say you're a bastard child, where's your dad, you're a product of something secret, and your family's covering it up, and then in verse 48, they remove all restraint and call him a Samaritan, which is basically an ethnic religious slur and by 59 verse 59 they literally try killing him so let me just summarize that you're the devil the devil talks through you you're not who you claim you're a liar you come from the wrong place your family's involved in a cover-up and actually you're a product of something we want to talk about and you're an ethnic spiritual dog let's just take him out whoa now, in the middle of all that religious, racial, political, and personal conflict, sound familiar? There's this little passage that's placed. And I just want to step back and say, the pastors of the day, they're a mixed bag like we all are. They really had genuine concern for the people. They were really afraid that Jesus was a charlatan and he was out to really deceive them. And yet at the same time, they also had a struggle with jealousy. Now, their honest concern starts in a wrong place and a wrong understanding of God and his work. But the encounter begins like this in, in uh, John 8, 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Okay, so the pattern, which we've talked about for years here at Sanctus, continues. Jesus spends time with God the Father in prayer, meeting, praying, spiritual disciplines, getting the next ministry assignment, and then comes back to the temple and begins to teach. Now, by this time, the leaders have already made up their mind he's false, he's dangerous, and he needs to be taken out in the most public of ways. So imagine it. There's 50 people, maybe 100, then 200, then thousands of people milling around, all the sacrifices taking place, all the work of the temple is happening, Jesus is teaching, tons of people are listening to him, and then as he's teaching, in the middle of all this, they're shouting, there's noise from the fringe of the crowd, it parts like water, and then a group of religious leaders push a woman towards Jesus. And as they arrive, they look at Jesus, and the whole ugly story comes out in public. The teachers of the law, verse 3, and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now, <laughs> we need to stop and pause, do a little bit of a history thing here to get this. There are two different groups of religious leaders trying to trap Jesus together. And they don't usually hang out with each other. 
The scribes are the bureaucrats or the lawyers of Jewish life. They're associated with the priests that work in the temple. They're experts in judicial procedure. They enforce uh, Jewish law and custom. And they're connected to like the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And they depended on the priests and the wealthy class for their positions. So they were loyal in that direction. So they're lawyers. The Pharisees are a totally different group. Now, if you've done church for a while, you know they get a really bad rap in church communities. But actually... We shouldn't miss this. Back then, they were viewed as really good people. And actually, in most places in Jewish culture, they were viewed as better, more religious, more honest, more helpful to the everyday person. They were actually looked up to. Pharisee just means a separated one. And they were known as lay preachers and lay scholars. And they were about ordinary people. They didn't play the religious games. They didn't have the wealth of the elites. They lived with, they hung out with, they were from everyday people. They weren't super wealthy. They weren't the super religious with all the political power. And their life was about monitoring and living out all of God's laws, plus a bunch of other laws that they invented. So put it like this. If the red line is do not murder, God says don't murder. There's the, that's the sin line. What they did is they invented 10 other laws that aren't found in the Bible to prevent you, to prevent you, to prevent you, to prevent you from even getting close to actually breaking God's law. So you've got God's law and then you got what they call the oral law. And they want to keep all of it. So you got the best religious leaders of the day. And you got the best preachers of the day bringing this case to Jesus. And at the center is this woman caught in adultery. Now, either this woman was already married or she was engaged. In that culture, it means the same thing. And this group of men that represent God and God's work caught this woman in adultery. And it says in verse 3, they made her stand... Before the group. Can you feel the terror and the fear and the humiliation and the guilt and the shame? A woman surrounded by men, men with power and religious power. And she's now thrust in front of the most famous healer and preacher of that day. Oh, in the middle of a massive crowd. Oh, right. In the middle of God's temple, which is the most holy place on earth. The place where heaven and earth literally touch, where God's very literal presence is found. So here she is in God's house in front of God in flesh. She doesn't know that. Brought by the most powerful men of her day in front of the most famous person of the day in front of hundreds or thousands of strangers. And then right in the middle of that, these men cry out adultery oh of course the crowd would talk she's totally exposed she cannot run she's caught which means she's either being grabbed right after the act or during it and this isn't fiction this isn't a made-up scenario i mean this is real they said to jesus verse 4 teacher this woman was caught in the act of adultery ah do you catch it teacher Oh, they give him the status, the right title to enter the conversation. And they saw, we know, this isn't false accusation. We have more than two or three witnesses. She's guilty and she's broken her marriage. And then they laid the perfect trap. Oh, they seem so kind towards Jesus, using the right words and titles, using all of God's word. Everything looks correct. It's not. See this. And I want you to feel this. They don't care about Jesus. And they don't really actually care what he has to say. And they actually don't even care about this woman. I mean, in their mind, lawbreaker, homewrecker, sinner, guilty. Let's just kill two birds with one stone. In the law of Moses, 
uh, we were commanded to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say, Jesus? I guarantee the words would have hung in the air. The woman, I wonder if she began to weep, knowing how serious this has become, because, I mean, Jesus knew the Old Testament, and the lawyers knew the Old Testament, and the priests and the pastors knew the Old Testament, and the crowd knew the Old Testament, and I guarantee this woman knew the Old Testament. So as the leaders thrust the woman and God's word in front of Jesus and wait for his response, I guarantee Jesus was repeating God's word in his head. Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer oh, and the adulteress must be put to death. There it is. Plain as day, what could Jesus do? I mean, he had already claimed in chapter 7 that he was the great I am. Hello. He claimed that he had come down from heaven. He claimed that he knew the Father and he was equal to the Father. And since God the Father gave the law through Moses, what is Jesus going to do? Change it now? I mean, what could he say? Verse 6. Uh, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Oh, the trap is so much better than we first catch. Uh, we think what they're up to do, what they're up to is like playing Jesus, mercy, grace-filled, kind. He's going to say, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And it's not really as bad as they're saying. And then they're going to get him by disobeying God's law. And then, of course, he's a false teacher. No, no, it's more than that. See, at this time, because the Jews were under occupation, to get the death penalty, you had to go with Roman law, with Roman permission, through Roman courts. So the Jewish leaders don't have the ability to actually kill her. Thus, this is the perfect setup. See, if Jesus agrees with the Jewish leaders and then he says, go and kill them, then he gets taken out by the Roman courts. But if he submits and he says, actually, I can't deal with this, nor can you, let's go to the Roman courts, then he's ignored God's law and he's committed sin and Rome and Caesar is more powerful than God's law and more important than Moses. In other words, Jesus is trapped between Caesar and Moses. This is a no-win situation. They've got him. There's no way out. See, they presume he's not from heaven. Ah, but he is. So what does he do? Well, he ignores them. He just disregards them. He is God in flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity. Let's not forget that. So it just says that Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. What did he write down? Did he list the sins of those setting the trap? Maybe he listed the sins of the woman. Did he write the scriptures out? Did he actually name the other sinner? Oh, has anyone noticed this yet? Where's the guy? I mean, where's the adulterer, not just the adulteress? I mean, both are supposed to be put to death. Why is she here and why did he get out? Just asking. Well, whatever he was writing, we have no clue. But it has powerful effect. Again, feel the, feel the tension. The eyes of the crowd, the terror of the woman, the legal minds and experts hoping that this upstart cult leader is going to fall on his own sword. They're waiting anxiously for his response. He doesn't answer. He's writing in the dirt and they keep pounding more and more and more. You got to give us a response. And finally, Jesus speaks. Oh man, does he speak. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So he stands and he responds on their own grounds and says, okay, you're zealots for the law. Get it. And you want to obey the law and you want to play games, nor do I. Okay, fine. You want to use it to your own advantage? 
great. But here's what I just got to share with you. You don't get to take God's name in vain by using the Bible to do what you want. So don't you understand that using the law is like a nuclear bomb and no one gets out because everyone is guilty. So see, you've broken the law and she's broken the law. So just asking, what's the difference between her and you? Jesus is fine, kill her, kill her. Oh, but the witness, by the way, the witness has to go first before the crowd. But here's my caveat, whoever throws the first stone, you just have to be God, perfect. He's quoting Deuteronomy 17, 6, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. And the hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death and then the hands of all the people. So according to the law, if the death penalty is going to be used under God's blessing, then the witness has to start it and you have to start it. And then the crowd gets involved and Jesus is fine and it's okay. And you're witnesses and there's at least two or three of you and you don't need to investigate this because you were there. So go ahead and do it. Just again, my one stipulation is this. You have to be perfect. See, the tables are suddenly turned. Suddenly what they attempt to make a religious or legal issue is reversed back on them. Jesus now moves this to a deeply personal and moral moment between the so-called men of God and the so-called crowd of God, well, and God himself. I love when one person said their pious armor has been pierced as each one faces the depths of their own sinful nature. Each has to deal with their inner darkness, which is so closely intertwined with self-righteous legalism. The savage delight in catching this woman in the act of sinning. The pompous pride in being able to use her as a shameful test case. The vengeful anger which drives them to get at Jesus. Are not these the ugly passions we all seek to hide? Well, before they can answer or act, he just breaks eye contact with them. He ignores them and he goes back down to writing in the sand. His holy act of sand writing. It says he stood, stooped down and wrote on the ground and at this those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older one at first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Uh, the older leave first. They know they're beaten. The younger, the passion-filled, those that wanted it so badly, they left. The crowds even seem to leave. It's like the scene fades and the camera sort of ebbs right in. And we're left with Jesus and the woman. I mean, what would happen next? It was Augustine that profoundly wrote, only two people were left, the unhappy woman and compassion incarnate. It says that Jesus stood up again. He straightened up. Now, the last time he did this, have you thought about it? He took everyone out. The last time he, he, he stood up and looked at the religious leaders, he decimated them. So is he going to take her out too? Oh, he speaks, not about her. He speaks to her. He looks into her eyes. I mean, this hasn't happened yet in the story. Woman, uh, where, where are they? Uh, has, has no one condemned you? Jesus now reestablishes communication and asks her not a question, he asks her the question. By the way, the question is not dripping in sarcasm. It's not a question filled with unseen hate. It's not a trap to get her around to. It's not a humiliating, a humiliating comment. This is not some gloating moment that he's won the oral argument of the day. 
This is just grace and truth and love. She wasn't a pawn in, her game, in his game. He loved her. He had actually come to see people like her and also the crowd and the religious leaders all be set free from sin, death, and the demonic. Has no one condemned you? I mean, that's what had been literally branded on her for hours. And I guarantee she thought her dying image in her mind would be a violent religious crowd killing her. No one, sir. Well, then, neither do I condemn you. So just go now and leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. Oh, by the way, I can condemn you. I have the right to condemn you. I'm perfect. I'm God in flesh. What you've done is evil. But I choose not to hold your sin against you. I offer you life, not death. See, now you begin to see why I've come. Hey, we're in the temple, right? See everything around us? See them sacrificing those animals and burning this and that? All of that that represents sin being covered, all of that represents a life laid down? Oh, no, me. All that which symbolizes forgiveness, I actually have the power to do it. It all represents me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. Oh, God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's, God's one and only Son. St. Paul would put it later like this in Romans 8.33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It, I mean, it's God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is praying, interceding for us. Okay. You might be asking, how does this amazing life-altering moment help us wrestle and journey well and end up in the right destination? Well, this biblical story powerfully speaks into doubt and skepticism and deconstruction and unbelief because it actually shows us four wrong turns that if you take them, you will end up in the wrong place. When Jesus is no longer at the center, uh, when you love a fight, when you redefine or dismiss sin, or you don't face your own sin, you're going to blow up the journey. Let me just take a few minutes. Jesus has to be at the center of your journey. Did you notice as this story began, Jesus was not at the center? The woman was at the center. And then the fight was at the center. And then the trap was at the center. But then everything was made right. Everything got okay when Jesus took center stage. I just want to say this again. It sounds so Christianese, but it's so true. Jesus needs to be at the center of all of your wrestling with unbelief, skepticism, doubt, and deconstruction. And by the way, the biblical Jesus. How do you do that? Maybe for the hundredth time or for the first time, I want to encourage you to go back and just read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, just make Jesus the center of your thinking, your reading, your struggling. See how amazing he is. See how beautiful he is. See how kind he is. See how truth-telling he is. Just see him. 
If you begin to go anywhere else other than the beauty and the person and the truth of Jesus, you're going to end up in some forest with two houses and not be at your destination. It's so easy not to have Jesus at the center of anything anymore. Here's the second thing. Jesus did not find joy in the pain, brokenness, or sin of others. So many people are sincerely struggling with church and Christianity because many people just love a good fight in the church and they're defending the truth. And even if it is the truth, they still miss the people in the middle of all the gunfire. Ask yourself this question. Are you the reason why people are doubting and struggling because you miss people in all of this? Are you one of the self-righteous folks who you're so eager to point the accusing finger of sin, even if it's truly sin, but actually you don't take time to keep working through your stuff? Are you quietly or out loud or online saying, I'm sure glad that person got what they deserved? Listen, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Let me just say that again. If you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. If you find joy when other people screw up, mess up, and fall, and you just love, you could be one of the major reasons why others are struggling. That brings me to number three, to that crowd, but all of us. We have to be willing to continually deal with our own sin before we deal with the sin of others. So many of our doubts and skepticism is rooted because we keep looking over there at that person's stuff. Jesus, you know, said things like, make sure that you are dealing with what's in your own eye before you're dealing with what's in someone else's. Paul put it like this in a church context in Galatians 6. Hey, brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. Watch yourself or you, must, you yourself might be tempted. Carry each other's burden. In this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in himself or herself without compromising to someone else. For each one should carry his own load. Jesus has to be at the center of the journey. We, we cannot become like the religious leaders and crowd and relish a good old... But actually, the more difficult thing is the willingness to continue to look in the mirror through Scripture and community to make sure that we face down our own stuff on a regular basis ever before we get to someone else. So much of the conversations I have pastorally about people doubting and struggling is they keep saying, but what about that person? And what about their stuff? What about yours? Here's one of the most pungent, powerful things in this passage that needs to be heard in a Canadian context. Jesus doesn't redefine sin. Jesus ends this moment with one of the greatest statements in the whole New Testament about grace and truth. And he doesn't do what our culture and what our hearts want him to do. He's not love culturally defined. He's biblically defined holy love. He says, go and sin no more. Jesus still calls sin, sin. 
He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't cover up. He doesn't say, well, we live in 2022 and we know so much better now. Oh, and I'm going to say this real slow. Even when religious people misused the situation, it still didn't change what a sin is. Uh Uh-oh, hello. Let me say this again. Even when religious people misuse a situation, it doesn't still change the nature of sin. Oh, oh, she's guilty. Yeah, and she was in sin. She broke God's law. And choosing not to condemn her doesn't lessen the sin. It heightens it, actually. As one person wrote, Jesus, is pinpoint, Jesus pinpoints this life-giving nature of the woman's encounter. It's a turning point for her, and she must not fall back in the way that leads to death and sin again. So, so here's what's so amazing about this passage. I hear so many people deconstruction saying, see, oh, you know, any person who's a truth teller, you're just a bunch of angry, religious, controlling, mob-like, stop. It's so interesting that they point to the crowd, which they should, but then have no problem redefining sin later. Jesus says, the Bible is clear what sin is and you don't have the right to redefine it. If you do redefine it, you're going to end up in the wrong place. So here's some questions to reflect on in Connect Group this week or in your own walk with Jesus or in your conversations with others. As we're trying to do the journey well, start the journey well, and find the destination, are you the religious leaders? Are you the woman and you know you're actually going down the wrong place and you've actually even been forgiven but you want to keep going even though you know what's wrong and Jesus has already said sin no more. Maybe you're a different person. You are the woman. You're like, I think my sin's fine. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what Jesus says. Are you the crowd enjoying the role of a spectator? Uninvolved, but you are. I just want to say this again. You'll know you're going to end up in the wrong place when Jesus, the biblical Jesus, is no longer at the center And that's really critical that we just catch that. That when you love a fight, even if it's truth-based, over people, if you don't take time to really ask God to reflect and show you your own sin, my own sin, and if you try redefining sin. I'm just going to pray that God would help us out in those four areas this week and see what he does. Thanks, God, that you're holy and you're loving And actually, (laughs) your greatest desire is to sit with us like you did with that woman and just say, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. So Lord, you know the hundreds, thousands of people that in the end will watch this and connect to this in some way, some form, in our church, beyond our church. Would you work out where Jesus is? Work out how much we love a fight? Would you speak to people uh, maybe about where they're at personally before they get to someone else? And would you also convict us if we're redefining sin because of culture, experience, pain, or anything else? Just give us these next four signposts so we can keep journeying well as we get ready to have this conversation on Good Friday and on Easter. Yeah, keep having mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.